the Chinese objective is not to just stop at the first island chain, but rather it's to go all the way to the west coast of Latin America. Today I sit down with Colonel Grant Newsham, a retired U.S. Marine officer and author of When China Attacks, A Warning to America. That first island chain actually hems in the People's Liberation Army. It makes it very hard for them to get into the Pacific. But if China takes Taiwan, they have seized a lodgment right in the middle. Think of a castle wall being breached. From cyber warfare to legal warfare to chemical warfare, how does the Chinese Communist Party use unconventional warfare techniques to systematically target, subvert, and weaken its enemies? Pentanol killed about 70,000 Americans last year. Think about it, you've effectively launched an attack on your main enemy. You're killing, taking what amounts to a couple divisions of troops off the battlefield every year, and nobody does anything. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Grant Newsham, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. I'm glad to be here. Thanks very much. So when China attacks, but the big question I have is when China attacks whom? Who are we talking about here? Well, ultimately, they want to attack the United States. Uh, we are the, the main enemy that prevents them really from getting regional domination and ultimately global domination. Uh, we're the target, but China is likely to use um, sort of so-called non-kinetic attacks against us uh, at this point. Um, but they are likely to use a kinetic assault to launch a military invasion of Taiwan. And by going after Taiwan, they have the chance to uh, humiliate the United States um, and really put the Americans on their back foot and make it look as if China is unstoppable. You start when China attacks with this hypothetical scenario of an attack by the Chinese Communist Party on Taiwan. And as I was reading, I was charting all these different, what you would call unconventional methods of warfare that the CCP utilizes to achieve its objective in the process. And I found it to be a very, very troubling scenario. How realistic is it that this is something that will happen in the near future? I think it could happen. There's probably a dozen scenarios that different analysts have, but I think this one, uh, I could see it happening. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Well, so explain to me why you think that. Mm -hmm. Well, what the Chinese want to do is to, one, seize Taiwan. They'd like to get it without fighting, but if they have to, uh, they will. And they've built up a military that's capable of doing it. Uh, but also, they need to ensure that the Americans are kept at bay. But they've got to sort of thread a needle here, because if they go too hard against the United States, against the Americans, it may provoke the Americans uh, to respond with all everything they have. And that's not what China wants, but rather you want just enough to humiliate the Americans, uh, to make them worry about what happens if they go all in, uh, and also to rely on China's proxies. Uh, it's essentially its front men in the United States um, to tell whatever administration is in office to just hold still, you know, don't don't respond. We can't ri risk nuclear war over little Taiwan, and we want to get back to business as usual. Um, so what I can see is the Chinese launching an all-out 
a very quick, hard assault on Taiwan, but not going all out on the United States. For example, not doing another Pearl Harbor attack or hitting the U.S. mainland and maybe even leaving the U.S. bases in Japan alone. Um, they do have ways to make life difficult for us, as you noted, uh, without using you know, their, actual, their military, uh, but rather their fishing fleet, the maritime militia, things that look like civilian uh, weapons or civilian entities. And also the, the proxies that I mentioned, in just about every country they've got people who, who will put in a good word for them. Uh, so that's how I see it. And I, the Chinese, I think, could present the American administration with a fait accompli. Uh, you know, they've gotten Taiwan, uh, and they've told the Americans, stand clear or it's nuclear war. Well, you can almost hear a certain type of administration talking itself into doing nothing, saying, well, we'd really like to, but it's unfortunate. You know, we can't uh, intervene on behalf of Taiwan. Uh, so that would be my sort of scenario. And I would note that, as I said, the Chinese would like to get Taiwan without fighting. Who wouldn't? It's a lot easier. And they have been launching political warfare against Taiwan uh, for decades. Uh, the subversion of the country uh, has just been immense and the pressure that is put on Taiwan. Uh, and what could happen, and this is a key date, is the upcoming presidential election in Taiwan in June, excuse me, January 2024. Um, if the sort of the pro-China candidate wins, China just might think, or Beijing might think, that it can work, work with him and draw him in, have him draw Taiwan into the mainland's embrace. Uh, most Taiwanese wouldn't want that, but uh, if you got a, a certain type of leader and you play it right, China might like their odds of, say, winning without fighting. But if a candidate from the, the party that wants nothing to do with Chinese domination, if they win, uh, at that point, I think the gloves come off and China gets very serious about a so-called kinetic attack uh, on Taiwan. And kinetic is just the, the popular word these days for a shooting war. Why is Taiwan so important to China? And frankly, why is Taiwan so important to the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, the question. And you hear a lot of people say, well, ta Taiwan isn't worth it. It's worth more to China than it is to us. Uh, we, it can't be defended. Just let it go. You hear that a lot in the debate these days. Uh, I think it's wrong. I think there's also a, uh, an element of maliciousness in it. The idea of letting 23 million free people come under Chinese communist enslavement is not something that sits well with me. Um, but why is it important? Well, first, from look at it from China's perspective. And uh, if you look at that, you can figure out why it's so important from the U.S. perspective. Uh, surprisingly, it doesn't have so much to do with the high-end semiconductors that Taiwan manufactures. It gets a lot of attention. And yes, it would be uh, an inconvenience, probably a big one, uh, if Taiwan's semiconductor production was cut. Uh, they produce something like 90% of high-end semiconductors. But that, I don't think, is the main reason. I think with, with or without chips, uh, Taiwan is a very juicy target for Beijing. And here's why. Taiwan is strategic terrain, strategic geography, if there ever was. Uh, it's part of the, the so-called first island chain that stretches from Japan to Taiwan, down to the Philippines, uh, down to Malaysia. And if you look at a map, and that'll tell you a lot about Chinese thinking, 
particularly military thinking, uh, that First Island Chain actually hems in the People's Liberation Army. It makes it very hard for them to get into the Pacific, to go east. But if China takes Taiwan, they have seized a lodgment right in the middle of the First Island Chain, and think of a castle wall being breached, and suddenly the attackers just pour in and keep going. Uh, and that's what would happen. And so if the uh, People's Liberation Army launches from Taiwan and goes up north, they can surround and isolate Japan. Uh, if they go down south, they can isolate Australia, cut it off from the U.S., cut it off from the rest of Asia. So militarily, it's very nice to have that as a, a platform. Uh, it makes operations farther east into the Pacific much easier to accomplish. And the Chinese objective is not to just stop at the first island chain, but rather it's to go all the way to the west coast of Latin America, where they are setting up the infrastructure, the ports and airfields, and the political influence, economic influence, uh, that they will need to deploy Chinese forces sometime in the future, not tomorrow, uh, but it's part of, uh, part of the plan. Uh, and <clears throat> so that from a military perspective, it's very important. You ask yourself, if I was the Americans, my first my frontal front defense line has been breached. Well, that obviously is serious. Uh, but there's, also, there's more to it than just the, the military operational issue. And that I would call the political psychological aspect of Taiwan and its importance. Because suppose Taiwan comes under you know, Beijing's rule. And look at the message that sends and that Beijing will have demonstrated. Uh, it's that the US military could not prevent the Americans from uh, keeping 23 million Taiwanese free. Uh, U.S. economic and financial power couldn't do it, and U.S. nuclear weapons couldn't do it either. Uh, in very sh in short order, you're going to find Asia turn red, as most countries uh, there realize that an American promise uh, is not what it used to be. And you're going to see that worldwide as well. It would be a huge uh, psychological, political blow against the Americans and for Beijing. and. So what, how would you argue, how would, not you, but how would one argue uh, if that happens? Say, well, if Taiwan wasn't all that important, but if it's somewhere more important, then we'll, we'll go all in. Well, I don't think anyone's really going to buy that. Um, not, uh, not least, we don't have a particularly good track record in recent times um, of leave, taking care of our friends, but rather uh, tend to leave them high and dry. And there's a point at which uh, a lot of people notice. So those are some of the reasons why Taiwan is so important. It's interesting when you talk about these scenarios you refer to, you're of course American, um, you talk about the Americans as if you're looking a little bit from the outside, which in fact you are. And so maybe I, this is the chance for you to just tell me a little bit about you know, your background and how you've come to be studying Chinese military capability and intentions. Sure, it, uh, I first started looking at Taiwan uh, and China um, around 1981, so it's been 40 years or so, and first started looking at uh, business with China. I used to be a lawyer, so that was uh, one area I focused on. Um, but also, I was with the Marines for 30 years and active in reserve time, and during that time, much of it was in, uh, in the Pacific, in Asia Pacific. Um, also, I was a diplomat with the U.S. State Department for eight, nine years. Uh, a lot of that was in uh, the Pacific, East Asia, and also uh, worked in the, the, the business community with a work for an investment bank in Japan uh, for a decade plus, and also for a high-tech company 
in Japan and Korea. Uh, that was Motorola. It's a familiar name to some people, but it committed suicide in China. Uh, and so I've had this sort of decades of experience looking at China, looking at Asia from different perspectives. So not just the military, but also the, the diplomatic, uh, the financial uh, industry, and also the high-tech industry. So. Well, and it's very interesting because a lot of this unconventional warfare that the Chinese Communist Party wages, that does, involves all these different sectors. It doesn't actually involve as much the the conventional, traditional, what we think think of as war fighting apparatuses or the actual military. Oh yeah, it's, it's a very different concept of war and of um, bringing your enemy um, under your control. Uh, we tend to look at warfare as uh, like a hundred yard dash where the participants, they get up to the starting line, they sh you know, shake loose and get down to the crouch and then the starter says go. And that's when the race starts, the war starts, the shooting starts. But to the Chinese, the shooting is just the last thing, if it's even necessary. Ideally, you've wake weakened your enemy and enemies uh, to the point that they can't respond effectively and or can't respond at all. And you do this with uh, methods that don't involve shooting people, although they are willing to do that or have other people do the shooting. Uh, for them, um, but it, it looks like you know things that to an American or Westerner look unobjectionable, looks just business competition. Well, the Chinese look at it as economic warfare. Uh, the idea is to drive your um, opponents or your competitors out of business, to uh, get their technology, suck their the know-how out of them, uh, rig the system in China so that you can build up Chinese companies, and the idea is to dominate uh, the main sectors. Uh, really just about anything that's worth making, uh, that's on the Chinese list of things to dominate. Um, and you, you look at how, you know, how that has actually worked in the U.S. It's um, once China was let into the World Trade Organization uh, in the early 2000s, despite not meeting any of the requirements uh, that every other country would need, uh, they, things went wild. And American businesses started uh, flocking to China. Uh, China turned into this manufacturing juggernaut and America's manufacturing capability and more importantly the jobs that, that came with that and the, the livelihoods that, that supported, uh, so many of those disappeared. One figure from an MIT uh, analyst is about three and a half million manufacturing jobs were lost as a result of letting uh, China into the World Trade Organization. And that's just jobs lost. You know, think that every one of those uh, jobs supported several people at least. Uh, so that has actually worked very well to China's uh, advantage. Uh, it's weakened us uh, and it's um, strengthened China. As the Chinese economy has grown, uh, you create a dependency uh, for other countries that are dependent on you, uh, America not least. It helps you develop your military as well. Uh, so <clears throat> it's, it's very much a sort of a, a net gain for the Chinese and a net loss for us. Uh, but once again, there's a psychological aspect to it. And I would encourage anybody, uh, go to some big American city or even not so big one, and go to the, if you dare, go to the, the neighborhoods where uh, working class people used to live and look at these things. It's as if a war took place uh, and it's horrific. And I describe part of that in, uh, in my book. Uh, and that's the, so that is one example of something the Chinese consider warfare that is intended to weaken their enemy while well, strengthening them. But we don't look at it as that, in that way. 
Um, there's other uh, lines of attack that, that China sees as um, warfare, uh, biological war, chemical war, cyber warfare, proxy warfare. That means getting your, um, your opponents, uh, prominent people, uh, influential people, to do your bidding for you. Uh, it was very interesting the other day when you, we saw the CEO of TikTok um, testifying before Congress. And it was interesting to see him, but more interesting was behind him. Uh, you had a phalanx of uh, Americans who had signed up to do China's bidding. Um, you know, money will have a way of doing that. There's also one point I wanted to mention as to why Taiwan matters. And that is that Taiwan, uh, it's a small island, 23 million people. Uh, it's an existential threat to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and how could that be? It's such a small place. Well, it's proof that uh, people of Chinese origin can handle democracy, can handle consensual government, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, all the freedoms that we think are important. Uh, Taiwan shows what's doable and what China could become. Uh, and that is one of the reasons Ta the Beijing wants to uh, strangle it, because uh, it is a daily living reminder that there is an alternative for China besides Chinese communist rule. Uh, you hear it all the time that, well, Chinese people can only be handled uh, or can be only be ruled by uh, a boot on the neck with force. Um, I think even Jackie Chan said something like that. Uh, but others have said it, and it's nonsense. You know, Taiwan, I say, is proof that, that is, it doesn't have to be that. Uh, so that alone, it's um, really a priceless uh, reminder of what China could be. And, you know, to, to extend that a little bit, um, you know, to me it suggests that any country that's a free country actually acts as a kind of a threat to the Chinese Communist Party. In fact, I was just kind of discussing this very issue on, on a podcast recently, that totalitarian regimes kind of fear any freedom, frankly, because it sort of it shows people that there's another way. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, and that is... Um something that the Chinese communists really don't like. If you listen to what they say, um, Xi Jinping gave a sort of a speech, an official speech, this was around 2013, in which he said that um, Western values, effectively, that's what he said, um, are antithetical. That's the enemy. That's the opponent. It's not at all compatible with uh, the Chinese communist, Chinese socialist uh, ideas and he was very clear. It wasn't there was no live and let live or let's take some of the good parts. Uh, he was very clear that the uh, say these Western values and they're not just Western. I've never come across too many people that like to be enslaved, that like to be treated unfairly uh, anywhere. Uh, that but that is an absolute threat to the uh, the Chinese Communist Party that ultimately rules by force, uh, does not rule with uh, the consent of the governed. Uh, that's an easy way to prove that is have a real election. Um, that doesn't seem to be on the cards. So let's talk about TikTok. I remember a few years back, you wrote an op-ed for us um, about TikTok and its relationship with a certain piece of legislation, the 2017 National Intelligence Law that the Chinese Communist Party enacted. And you know it, that it may have some bearing on what TikTok ultimately is required to do. <laughs> oh, well, that's an easy one. <clears throat> um, TikTok's uh, high-priced American lawyers will insist otherwise. But TikTok has to do whatever the Chinese Communist Party tells it to do. Uh, that is required by law, the national intelligence law you just mentioned. Uh, but even before that law was passed, 
Um, if the Ministry of State Security comes to your company and says, we'd like you to come in for tea, uh, there's only one answer to that. Uh, so that has always been uh, the reality of any Chinese company. Uh, there's no such thing really as a, a private company that's free of government coercion uh, the way we would see it. Um, so it was, it's ironic that we're spending so much time debating the degree to which TikTok and similar companies uh, have connections to the Chinese government. Um, they all do, you know, and it is about that simple. Um, you know, Jack Ma, for example, you hear all about him, you hear about him, and it was thought, well, he's a sort of a brash private sector guy. Well, no, he's always been a creation of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and that's one of the the aspects about that regime, that system, is that a country, a company uh, in China will only be as successful and for as long as the Chinese Communist Party says it will. Uh, and that is uh, the reality of it. Uh, but, you know, when you're paying a lawyer $800 an hour to argue the point, they're glad to do it. Uh, but some things are not that hard to figure out when it comes to uh, the PRC. You know, I was recently at a hearing What was being discussed was the Chinese doctrine of civil-military fusion, and it's actually one of the top seven national priorities, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And so, you know, again, this makes me think that there's something very relevant here to the realities around TikTok. Mm -hmm. You have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, that uh, military-civil uh, fusion, civil-military fusion, uh, it, what it, what it is, it's the a description of how in China the sort of economic activities and military uh, activities are combined. One supports the other and vice versa. Uh, and so something that's developed for say, military purposes and there's a, a commercial use for it, well, you're gonna, it's gonna get shared and vice versa. Uh, and that is strategy. It's the way that uh, Chinese look at things, and, but it's been uh, very effective in that. And so TikTok, you know, the, when you think of what the, the harmful aspects are, um, if you can influence your target uh, and particularly young people or even older people to think a certain way, that directly benefits your military. You know, as it thinks about how can it weaken the enemy uh, in order to set them up for eventual uh, assault, eventual domination. Uh, and also the intelligence collection capabilities of TikTok. Uh, there's usefulness there. And once again, that uh, benefits the, the military, the security uh, part of you know, Chinese um, the Chinese government, governmental structure. Uh, so you should never, as I said, you see it all the time, but don't ever think that there's a purely uh, private company in China. When t if push comes to shove, uh, they are obligated by law to uh, cooperate with the, the authorities. Um, there's nothing in China like when um, Apple, remember, refused to unlock phones of a mass murdering terrorist, refused to help out the FBI. Uh, but at the same time, they actually did help out the Chinese government uh, unlocking some things. So you things you can do in America, you cannot do in China. And that needs to be kept in mind. This also suggests to me that it's almost unthinkable that when there is a civil-military fusion opportunity, especially a great opportunity, it's unthinkable in this context that it wouldn't be used. I mean, heads would roll, you know, I don't know if literally, but proverbially. Uh, that, that's what strikes me. I don't know what you'd think about that. Well, that's how it is. You know, it, it's something that's so foreign 
for uh, to us. You know, we sometimes admire the brash business executive, like uh, say Howard Hughes, you know, who goes in front of the, the Congress, and he talks talks straight to him, talks tough. Um, you would only do that if well, there is no Congress in China, but if there was, you would only do it once. Uh, so we look at that as very natural, as the private sector businesses uh, separate from the military, from security uh, activities. Chinese see it very differently. Everything comes together to enhance Chinese power. Uh, and they see it as, as Chinese power grows. It's, um, ideally, it uh, happens at the same time American power reduces. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, Motorola, for example. Um, you know, think of that in its day, it was one of America's top three, four, five companies, really respected. Um, and it got in trouble, partly by go, getting into the China market uh, without being uh, wise about what they were doing. And now it basically doesn't exist. There's a little bit left. But the, the bulk of what was Motorola is now owned by Lenovo, by a Chinese company. Uh, but think of the effect of that. You know, you had multiple generations of people who worked in, you know, for Motorola in Schaumburg, Illinois, uh, elsewhere, and it's all gone. And it hasn't been replaced with anything. So China's uh, high-tech industry has uh, expanded rapidly. Uh, now it's a, you know, a real threat, and, or it's a real challenge, you know, a competitor to the US companies. And so America's gotten weaker, China's gotten stronger. And that's, that's how China does the, cal the Chinese communists do the calculation. While we're on this topic, maybe you can just tell us about this concept of comprehensive national power, which the CCP uses to rate itself against, I think, probably every nation in the world. I don't know, you, 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 you'll have to tell me the, the details, but it's, it's important how they think about this. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, I'll try, to, um, I'll try to explain it simply in a way I can understand. Uh, but if you, you look at it in, uh, in the sense of whatever is good for me is bad for you, that is the ideal. Um, something that, that weakens your opponent uh, while strengthening you is ideally what, what you want. So China actually counts um, all of these wins, all of these successes that they have uh, around the world. You know, they set up, a, get ownership of a, some strategic ports or airfields. Um, well, the Americans aren't getting in there. And that has, it all goes into that, uh, that uh, accumulation of what you would call national power. Uh, everything that that is good for China, that benefits China, um, you know, that's exactly what they want. But they, it's not as if they want it to be the so-called win-win where everybody's, you know, benefiting. They want the other side to to go down. And if you can weaken your enemy, confuse him, um, take away his um, key industries, uh, if you can uh, weaken his his currency, weaken the dollar. Well, and you get people to start using Chinese currency overseas. Well, that is a big addition to China. It's in the, the plus side for China's comprehensive national power, and it's a decline or a, it's a takeaway from the, the American uh, national power. Uh, and so just if it helps if you just forget the idea of win-win. Uh, the Chinese use that expression a lot, but what they mean is we win uh, twice and you lose. And one other just example would be the Chinese get the, uh, the blueprints for the F-35 fighter, for the C-17 long-range transport. Well, that's a good thing for China. It goes into the, the plus column. And in where do, where, what does it look like on the American side? Well, that's the negative side of the ledger. Uh, so they're very much keeping score. 
uh, with this, because that is the, the and it's helpful to remember the ultimate objective of the Chinese Communist Party, and you really just have to listen to them, and that is ultimately to uh, kick the Ameri get the Americans out of Asia, but also keep pushing, and eventually dominate the region and dominate the the globe, and they've uh, have gone about um, setting things up to do that. They've got a ways to go, uh, but it's been a very impressive uh, move over the last 20, 30 years. So just on the side of the Chinese military, and this is something you've been looking at, you know, what is the state of the Chinese military? I've heard like wildly different assessments of the capabilities. What have you found? Um, unfortunately, they're pretty good. Uh, we, it used to laugh, and I'd say we, but people used to laugh say 20 years ago when the idea of uh, the People's Liberation Army attacking Taiwan was mentioned. It was jokingly referred to as the, the Million Man Swim. The idea being they didn't have the resources to get across the Taiwan Strait and also implied in it was they weren't smart enough to figure out how to do it. Uh, well, nobody's laughing these days. Um, in my book, I actually have a chart um, that was put together by the, the former head of intelligence uh, for the U.S. Navy in the Pacific our Pacific Fleet, uh, that graphically depicts the Chinese, mili Chinese military growth uh, over the last 20 years. The, the first chart is, 20, is 2,000, and there's not much there. You know, the China doesn't have much hardware, and it can't operate very far offshore. Uh, in 2020, it's very different. It's just the whole chart is full. And China has a, a military, has a Navy, Air Force, ground forces, uh, and also, as everyone knows, rockets, missiles, um, and it's got a lot of them, and it's figuring out how to use them. It already knows how. Uh, it knows its weaknesses and it's trying to address those, but it now is able to really throw its weight around in the region, and the idea is to eventually throw it around uh, in the globally. But as I said, there was a condescension uh, towards the Chinese over many years that uh, they could never be our equals. You know, I once heard, as I suggested, this was five or six years ago, uh, to some Marines that the Chinese would have the equivalent of our amphibious uh, force, or these units that patrol the, the oceans. And people laughed at me. Now, I could never do it. It's too hard to do. Uh, well, it wasn't. And the Chinese could put together two or three of these things, at least if they wanted to. And they've had them out and about um, for um, more and uh, better future operations. So, so we've, we've underestimated them. That was a mistake. But they do have problems. It's not as if uh, they figured everything out. Uh, and that is something that we do need to keep in mind. You don't want to psych yourself out. And, uh, but you do have to realize just uh, what a formidable force they've become. And in certain circumstances, uh, they could probably uh, beat us uh, if they chose their, uh, or at least kill a lot of us if they chose their, um, chose the, the timing. Um, and for example, something close to the Chinese mainland, uh, we would have a hard time because they would have uh, the, the advantages of operating uh, from so-called interior lines, but from the, the Chinese mainland, uh, it'd be a huge advantage for them. It'd be hard for us to try and get in there. Um, but if you get farther out, then it gets more difficult for the Chinese. And it could be, oh, five years before they really have the, the so-called power projection capability, where you can send military units way far away, and they can um, use, uh, well, shoot somebody, uh, use force. Um, but before that, there's nothing that the Chinese are very capable of sending, say, naval flotillas uh, to the, the ends of the earth. Uh, they do it in Africa, uh, Latin America, they go down there, uh, the Indian Ocean. 
they've been sending uh, units to uh, the Horn of Africa uh, for a long time, and they're, they're smart. They've learned uh, what the shortcomings are. They've learned how to operate, uh, combining uh, different forces and different um, sort of types of units, and they, they've done a very good job. Uh, the Chinese leadership does complain sometime about the so-called peace disease. They fret that you know that. Uh, they haven't had combat experience, and that isn't a that is a real drawback, and it kind of is. Um, but the U.S. Navy hasn't really fought a major enemy for since 1945, uh, and the U.S. forces, the combat experience, tends to get winnowed out pretty quickly, just as time goes goes on. So, if you understand the, the problem, if you um, say train to address it, and you train hard you can make up for that lack of experience. So I don't see that as as much a problem as uh, some other people do. But a lot of what uh, the fix we've gotten ourselves into with the Chinese does come from not having taken them seriously enough uh, and maintained our edge. Uh, we spent so many years in the, the so-called sandbox in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, focusing on those kind of wars that the Chinese caught up uh, in mo many areas and surpassed us in some as well. You know, I can't help but think about, since we're talking about maritime capability, this unconventional fleet that the CCP has to use in, in a military way, which is essentially like their fishing fleet, but it, which also doubles as a kind of maritime militia with its, you know, kind of fascinating swarming tactics. I find this very interesting because I find that it perhaps is a way to explain the Chinese Communist Party's mentality around warfighting, what kinds of tools can be used, and also this idea that whatever this group of fishing boats, you know, is doing, you know, you, you couldn't have a military response to that, of course, right, because these are just fishing boats. It would be an outrage. It would be an international crisis, or so the propaganda would say, irrespective of what those boats were actually doing. So anyway, tell me a little bit about this maritime militia, how it works, um, is it actually just an arm of the military, or not? What, what is this? Um, it's um, an arm of the People's Armed Police. It's probably a good way to look at it, but just think of the military. That will work. And these are um, fishing boats that they sometimes they do fishing, um, but they're also built for um, double hauls, sort of up-engined. Uh, they and and um, have people with arms on them, uh, and they're used. You, know, you could use them to ram, to intimidate, and sink other. Uh, other vessels, particularly other fishing vessels. Uh, and you have this, the, the, the charade that, well, they're not a part of the military, they're just fishing boats. And they've used these very successfully in the South China Sea. And you can establish a, a long-term presence in places and really drive your opponents out. They won't go in. You know, if you're a fisherman, there's no way you're going to go in and challenge uh, sort of a big boat with a double, with a strong hull. A double hull that um, and guys with weapons on it um, that is willing to ram and sink you and shoot you if necessary. Uh, so it, it's a nice adjunct and it gives you the cover, as you pointed out, of saying, "Well, it's not. This is just a fishing boat. What are you complaining about? Uh, it's not a naval uh, vessel." Uh, and the Chinese have a lot of these, uh, and that is in, ad in addition to their just regular fishing fleet, which really sails the, the seven seas, vacuuming up uh, a fish. And one example of how they um, throw their weight around in a way it, of um, causing your enemies, your opponents, to, to back off uh, is with Japan uh, in oh, the last 
decade or so, a handful of times, the Chinese have um, flooded the zone with fishing boats, some maritime militia in there, but a lot of them just fishing boats, say 400 boats around a tiny Japanese island. Uh, the Japanese don't have anywhere near enough uh, patrol boats, Coast Guard or Naval, uh, to take care of that. And the Chinese have done this now and then. And the purpose is to tell the Japanese, look, when the time comes, we're going to, they say, assert administrative control, which is the legal term for um, asserting dominance uh, of uh, your territory. And the Japanese are very worried about this. Um, the Chinese have driven uh, Japanese fishing boats out of their traditional waters. They don't go into some of these. Uh, because they, they're afraid. And see, the maritime militia, the fishing boats, throw in a, a couple of Coast Guard uh, boats, and it's a formidable force. Um, Chinese Coast Guard cutters are effectively warships. Uh, they're big, they're armed, uh, and they're really the size almost of US um, naval combatants. Uh, so the, the, the Chinese have also understood one of the weaknesses of their opponent, and that is that we. Uh, so we insist on law, playing by the rules. And when somebody doesn't do it, we're flummoxed. We don't quite know what to do. And you hear this all the time on the US side. Well, China's gray zone activities. What do we do about it? Um, and that's about as far as it all gets is, what do we do about it? And nobody has actually come up with uh, sort of the commonsensical notion as you let them know that uh, we consider these um, naval ships. and we are going to respond accordingly. There was actually a, a US naval commander who stated that it was some years ago, not that long, but a while back. And he was on the right track. But it takes a certain uh, willingness on our side to push back, uh, but also fight back. Uh, but if, you're, if the other guy knows that he can break the rules, can uh, push elbow in on you and sink, you know, hurt you, and you're not going to do anything because it's against the law. Uh, well, he's going to take advantage of that. And it's almost an aspect of so-called lawfare, uh, where the Chinese use, the, use international law um, to their advantage. Uh, you know, partly it helps if they don't obey it, and we do. Um, you can see the advantage that it gives, uh, say, the Chinese compared to, to us and others. Well, and it's this, what I find most fascinating about your hypothetical assault on Taiwan scenario, which you chronicle in. Uh, the book is is the gray zone activity and the reaction, which I think is pretty accurate of what would happen unless we have, you know, a dramatic policy change of the nature that that you just described. Yeah, you know, you can use these um, just regular fishing boats, maritime militia, say, to surreptitiously lay mines, say, off of Japanese ports where the U.S. Navy operates. Um, they could use it. You know, cargo ships, for example, can. Uh, launch drones um, and that can cause the Americans a lot of trouble, say, as they're sailing out of San Diego. Uh, and th these are things that we, we don't think of it as war fighting, but it's a wonderful platform, and we should expect that uh, we're going to have to deal with it. Well, and think about what that means. Cargo ships coming out of China being weaponized. How, what portion of the world's cargo ships come out of China? It's probably a very significant portion. No, it is, and you know, the, uh, it's referred to as uh, one of the key worries is uh, containerized missiles. Um, you know, you've seen a big container ship that has thousands of uh, containers on it, and you just need a couple of them that have anti-ship cruise missiles on it. Uh, and which one is it in? It's a giant shell game. And if you're willing to do that, 
you, it can give you a huge advantage. And then all you have to say once it happens is, we don't know. You know and unless and we Americans insist on evidence uh, to be able to prove the charges, and if the Chinese just shrug their shoulders, uh, one can see the usefulness of this. Uh, so it could make it very hard for the Americans res to respond to a, a Taiwan scenario. Uh, you don't have to, say, sink an aircraft carrier, um, just disable or immobilize a, a couple of other naval, naval ships. And the Americans don't have enough, well, we don't have enough ships. Uh, but also, you kind of get worried of what other problems you're going to have. Um, and that is, uh, I think, very much part of the Chinese uh, military strategy, is to make use of the, the so-called gray zone uh, and what looked like civilian uh, resources or s platforms uh, to go after us and, and their enemies. The, the Australians will find something similar if they head north from Australia. Um, uh, they'll find that because they've lost a few ships uh, on the way up uh, from the, the Chinese fishing fleet, most likely. You know, I want to stay in the Pacific for a moment longer. You know, there's all these different unconventional warfare methods that the Chinese Communist Party is affecting on the U.S. mainland. I want to get to that. It's incredibly important. But, you know, I've recently become more aware of some of these kind of, on one, the one hand, bullying actions of the Chinese Communist Party, trying to get the leaders or leaders of some of these small island chains to basically play ball seemingly on the course to, well, you, as you called it, assuming administrative control eventually, right? Um, but there's been a few of these leaders that have actually, you know, kind of unbelievably against all odds stood up to the, to the behemoth. In one case, President Panuelo, a Federated States of Micronesia, he is actually, he's on record saying that active Chinese officials have threatened his life like people that are in the capacity of serving as Chinese officials, not this kind of gray zone thing that you usually see. And, you know, describes a host in this long letter, this host of serious threats to his nation. Um, kind of unheard of, I mean, anywhere, never mind in a, you know, a tiny island chain state. But what is the significance of this? Um, well, keep in mind that we won't even say those things. Um, because we're afraid China might um, not let us do business there. Um, even American uh, leaders are reluctant to speak out in too many cases. Uh, but, but maybe give us a, just a quick summary of what President Penuelo has, mm -hmm. has, has well, alleged. Well, well, well what he's laid out, and he's, he's speaks, he writes in great detail about you know, things like the, the Chinese paying off all sorts of officials and uh, influential people in uh, in Micronesia. Uh, they're providing money to secessionist groups in several of the states in Micronesia. Uh, if you like providing you know, money to Texas so they could go independent. Um, but they're doing that. Um, they have, um, in just the most amazing way, they've appointed, uh, it was recently uh, at a, a meeting down in um, South Pacific where the Micronesians were not going to participate. The Chinese designated a uh, a, a Micronesian guy, and sort of t said, "Well, you're, you represent Micronesia." He had no, you know, no authority to that. But they just did it and brazenly uh, ignored the, you know, the, the rights of the of a sovereign nation. Um, they have also been uh, sending survey ships to follow the uh, communications cables. Um, they've been doing this in a lot of places, and the idea is, when the time comes, uh, to cut them. 
Um, and you're seeing this full-fledged political warfare, uh, an influence uh, effort against Micronesia. And this is just Micronesia. And you know you have huge Chinese and um, investment companies, these real estate developers come in and promise billions. And, and what they do is they insinuate themselves, uh, first commercially, uh, then uh, that leads to political, uh, well, political influence. And they pretty much get a lock on the local economy. They create um, a constituency of people that get a, a ton of money from uh, the PRC. Uh, most people don't like this, but there's, like, there's nothing you can do. And they've been very effective doing this um, in the Pacific. And these are the islands where in World War II, uh, there was just bloody combat to take them back from the Japanese. Uh, these islands in the Central Pacific are actually in the middle of America's defense uh, defenses. You know, we have the first island chain, as I mentioned, with Taiwan. But the Chinese are setting up behind us. Uh, the third step in, when, in Chinese influence efforts uh, is a military uh, presence. They've taken their time on that, but in the Solomon Islands recently, uh, they have um, signed a deal with the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands that effectively lets uh, Chinese military into Solomon Islands, and that's where Guadalcanal was, the World War II battle. Um, and so the Chinese military, it will get in there um, before too long. But you have, let's say, this uh, Prime Minister, or excuse me, President Panuelo, he he had the nerve, the courage to stand up and say this. And this was actually the third letter he's written. Uh, he wrote one last July and one little before that, uh, warning his sort of fellow citizens, uh, fellow officials, uh, but also the leaders of other countries of this Chinese um, uh, subversion uh, that is coming its way. And, it, and he says it means there's nothing good uh, for the people of the country uh, when this happens. But it's important to note that um, he's also, so he's put himself at real risk. You know, China does play hardball, and <clears throat> you can take that you know, in its fullest meaning. Uh, but he's spoken up, and if you, I really recommend people read the letters because they're so well written. A real cry from the heart, and also asking for help uh, from the Americans. And that doesn't seem to have been forthcoming. Uh, yet he has even, Panuelo also offered to um, change Micronesia, Federated States of Micronesia's recognition from uh, China to Taiwan. And that is very rare uh, to have that happen. Um, but there's some timing issues here. But uh, you'll notice it doesn't seem as though the Americans have taken advantage of the opportunity. You know, if you're a, a guy who's you know, stood up against the Chinese, you'd think he'd get some sort of support from the United States. And it, if, if it's being given, it's really well hidden. Well, um, if you're watching this episode online, we're going to embed it into the into the web page because mm -hmm. it's it's also functions to me as a bit of a kind of blueprint of Chinese Communist Party influence operations anywhere. Like all the thing, everything listed there are things that I'm aware of mm -hmm. um, in other places. It really is. It's a predictable sequence. Uh, applies to U.S., Canada. Um, and anywhere. And it, so it starts with a commercial presence, because it's just business. You know, who, who can complain about that? But the, the business say, leads to political influence. It creates dependency uh, within the societies. And it's, from the Chinese perspective, they're happy to have um, the societies start to fight amongst, in, have internal fighting. People who don't want the Chinese coming in, others who do. And you get that society turning on itself. And that's very good from a 
um, from the Chinese perspective. And ultimately, as I said, the objective is to have a military presence. But they're patient, um, but that, that will come. Uh, but it's, it's not hard to see what's happening, and you see something uh, very similar happening in so many countries, uh, that commercial and political uh, and dependence that, that you create, uh, that it, it's worked very well, uh, and there's usually financial benefits for, uh, involved there. Um, but it tends to corrupt, a, it not tends, it corrupts a country, and as noted, it, it does you know, get people and you know, society to actually uh, get very unsettled and you know, fight, people fighting with each other, uh, which makes it, uh, from Chinese perspective, that's a good thing. So let's talk about one of these unconventional warfare methods which the CCP has been engaged in, which is, you know, fentanyl. Mm -hmm. This is something you write about, something that's very, you know, close to your heart as well, I know. Um, explain to me how this works. It's, uh, it is as clear a case of chemical warfare uh, as you will find. Uh, what it is is China provides about 99% of the fentanyl precursors, the, the raw materials that go to Mexico and then get turned into uh, pills and moved into the United States. Uh, fentanyl killed about 70,000 Americans last year, uh, and that's Americans of all types. And in uh, the entire 12-year Vietnam War, only 55,000 Americans were killed. So in one year, uh, America lost 70,000 people, many of these of military age, and this is just ones who uh, who died. You know, the, there's the walking wounded, uh, the effects this has on families, societies, uh, the cost of dealing with um, and trying to treat these, these people uh, are immense. You know, some figures are over a trillion dollars, depending on where you look. Um, but think about it. You've effectively launched an attack on your main enemy. You're killing, what, taking what amounts to a couple divisions of troops off the battlefield every year. Um, and Nobody does anything. You get away with it. This is really setting us up for the, the day that a shooting war actually starts, or it just may not even be necessary. Fentanyl, the chemical warfare, ties in uh, to economic warfare uh, because it's very hard. You know, if you, America needs workers. Well, if a lot of them are drug addled, well, it gets hard to, it's just one example, you know, it's very hard to uh, find people to actually you know, work in the factories if you do start one up. Also, there's a psychological warfare aspect of this because by getting so many influential Americans convinced that they have to be in the China market, uh, convinced that they're, they're, they need to make money from China, uh, and also convinced that we need China's help with fill in the blank, North Korea, climate change, transnational crime, uh, that as a result of that, we've tied our hands and will not take on China on the, the fentanyl scourge that is killing uh, just tens of thousands of us every year, and it's not stopping. Uh, in 2018, Donald Trump did uh, speak with Xi Jinping about it, and uh, Mr. Trump declared it was a game changer, and of course nothing changed. Uh, but, Trump, but Xi Jinping even told him, look, you know, you've got a drug problem, I don't. And they could stop it anytime they want, but they're glad to have it go in to the U.S. Well, what, so I was going to say that multiple administrations have been, quote, working with China on this issue. Right, and you're saying they can stop it anytime they want. They want so you know, but not everyone would agree with you. Not everyone would believe it's that simple. How could that be possible? Well, here's a test. I would suggest anybody who wants go to China, 
and go out from your hotel and go on a walk. And if you see a picture of Xi Jinping, take out your Sharpie and draw a mustache on it and see if the Ministry of State Security is waiting for you before you get back to your hotel or five minutes afterwards. The, the level of control that China has over that society uh, is immense. And Orwell couldn't have dreamed, dreamed of it. Uh, what you find actually when, um, you know, I used to do a lot of work in the organized crime field, um, Asian organized crime in particular, and you always found with the Chinese organized crime that it tracked back to the security services, to the Chinese military, uh, to the Chinese Communist Party, always. And you look at the, this has just been a, a huge win for the Chinese to cause us this much harm and to get us to think China can't do anything about it. Uh, you know, I've heard, all the, I've heard the excuses, well, the, it's local officials. Um, and the central government doesn't know what they're doing. And once again, that suggests you don't really know how China works. I've heard that, well, the police, are their hands are tied. Uh, otherwise, they would crack down. Well, the police do whatever they want. Uh, and the, the other good one um, is that, well, they, the guys that make it, um, they just rejigger the, the formula. So it, it's not illegal. And as if in China that the law actually matters, uh, the law is what Xi Jinping says it is. Uh, as I say, that China could crack down on this if it wanted, uh, but I would suggest it doesn't because it's just been wildly successful uh, in, in killing us. Um, you know, I don't know why you would stop if your uh, enemy is uh, not wise enough to stand up for himself. Some people have described it as, the, as a reverse opium war, basically. A reverse? A reverse opium war. Oh, I've heard as, that, yeah. Some people have described uh, yeah. it as a reverse opium war, indeed. The opium war was 180 years ago, roughly. Um, you know, there's a point at which uh, that excuse doesn't get you very far. And these are, once again, go to those parts of American cities that are absolute war zones, uh, and a lot of it having to do with the drug assault, fentanyl. And I think I had mentioned once that um, I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago, and um, a fellow um, who was a retired Navy pilot from Pittsburgh got a hold of me somehow and called me up and uh, told me that his son, his adult son, had just uh, died from fentanyl poisoning. And he, he was, of course, distraught, to put it mildly. Um, and he said, you know, I tried to get congressmen to, interested, and they, they really weren't. And, you know, all I could do was uh, listen to him, and I was... You know, and to the extent I can, uh, cast some light on that, that issue. But the, uh, the effects of this on our country and to ignore it the way our ruling class has, our elites have, uh, there's a callousness that just isn't my, isn't my thing. Well, I really want to talk about solutions, you know, as we finish up. Um, to this one specifically, you know, what would we do Right. But one other thing that just occurred to me, you did mention how the CCP might use climate change. You know, in the U.S., there's many that believe that it's an existential threat. We have to work with the Chinese Communist Party on this. If we don't, well, we, basically we need to make all sorts of concessions yeah. for this purpose. And so how do you view that? Is that another tool of war fighting? Oh, it's incredibly effective, too. You know, you've, um, China is very sensitive, for example, to its human rights record. Uh, where it's just an absolute it's an atrocity. And you have, say, the climate czar, John Kerry, saying um, human rights don't matter. The only important thing is climate change. 
So we're not going to talk about this with the Chinese. We need their help. Um, and I, I mentioned North Korea and transnational crime, even though so much of the transnational crime, uh, there's a Chinese role in it. Um, but also North Korea, what they're doing is actually very much in line with what the Chinese want. But you have the Americans in particular thinking, well, China doesn't want, you know, they want what we do. And we don't want to pressure them, don't want to get them mad. And it's hard to see how you're going to win a war or win this fight with the, the PRC if you're thinking like that. Um, and you know, you've you got to hand it to them. Some days you almost don't know what to say, but what, to, what do you do about it? Certainly we need to do something different than what we're doing um, and have been doing, but you um, apply pressure where it's really going to hurt. And it's, you apply it almost asymmetrically from a different direction. And one example of this is the, in, I covered in the book, is that the Chinese uh, government is absolutely dependent on the convertible currency, US dollars. Um, without it, they really can't fund their, their military or even their economic growth. If they want to fund the Belt and Road Initiative, well, you've got to pay in US dollars or something like it. Uh, so everything they want to do, uh, they have got to find the, the dollar somewhere. And that can be by manufacturing things in China, selling them overseas. It can be Wall Street pumping in tens of billions a year into the Chinese economy, uh, which is a, just a godsend to the, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, America's business class, the foreign direct investment it puts into China, it's sending in the convertible currency that they're using to build their economy, uh, build their military, their the so-called comprehensive national power. So that doesn't get nearly the attention that it deserves. Uh, they haven't got half the foreign currency they need to pay all of the, the things they owe. You saw the um, American investor Mark Mobius just note the other day that he wasn't allowed to take his money out of China. Um, you know, welcome to discovering gravity. Um, you know, this has been the case for forever uh, in that system. So there's a shortage of convertible currency. So here's what you do: you uh, take the, uh, the the biggest and even not the biggest uh, Chinese financial institutions, and you um, cut them off from the U.S. dollar network. Uh, start with the People's Bank of China, revoke its license to operate in the U.S. for six months. Uh, that would get some attention. Uh, additionally, uh, many, if not most, of China's elite uh, have assets overseas. Uh, they don't have enough confidence in their own system or its future. Uh, so they put it in places like America, Britain, England, uh, Singapore, Australia. Um, and ideally, they get a relative out there with a green card as a residence permit. Uh, and we should be seizing bank accounts, canceling residence permits of their relatives, and also publicizing this to high heaven. Um, the Bloomberg's did some excellent reporting around 2013 on Xi Jinping's um, family overseas wealth. Uh, they knuckled under and spiked the stories. That's how sensitive it was. But that is the way you can apply pressure uh, so that it, it matters personally. It's a, they feel a personal effect at the high end of uh, China's ruling class. Also, go after them on the human rights front, nonstop. Every day is a nonstop. But we don't seem to do that. Uh, and those are things that the Chinese the Communist Party is very vulnerable to. Um, and just a few ideas there that you, you can see none of those involve shooting. Um, but these are uh, forms of pressure that you can apply uh, if you identify what the key weaknesses are. Uh, and you know, for the, the fentanyl murder, 
that if we won't do these things, we're not serious. Uh, and that is, is heartbreaking. So Grant, to your point, there's a piece of legislation, the Stop Organ Harvesting Act of 2023, I believe I have that right or close, um, just passed the House. Um, and it's basically has some teeth in terms of, you know, sanctioning officials that are involved in this ghastly business in communist China, one of the most severe human rights violations there. Um, you know, something significant. Maybe mm -hmm. it's not 24-7. It's also just passed in the House. We don't know where it's going to go from here. But it does seem like U.S. legislators are, you know, thinking hopefully at least a bit in the direction that you're describing. Yeah, it's a good thing. We'll see, as you say, we'll see where it goes. And there are plenty of people on Capitol Hill who do take this seriously. The, the donor class, of course, uh, seems to call the shots too often at the end of the day. Um, but they, they, there are very good people uh, on Capitol Hill on both sides um, who want to do something about it. And this shows one thing that's doable, but you've really got to not just pass it and then sanction a few unlucky officials. Um, you go up to the highest levels uh, and make them feel the heat. But you do have to understand the system, realize how pressure, how power is applied, and go pretty darn close to the top. Uh, and so it shows what's doable. We'll see what comes. Well, Grant Newsham, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show again. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you all for joining Grant Newsham and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick. When you have an agency that has gone rogue and is interfering at the highest level of the country to affect an election, they tried to spread a dossier. They tried to destroy Michael Flynn. They had a laptop and said, we're not going to talk about it. The directors of those agencies are willing to uh, alter or leak documents that they shouldn't or lie under oath to federal investigators or wipe clean phone records that are under subpoena or they will not prosecute one person, but they will another. Then it's, it's institutionalized. And they're charging me with a crime. And you've got to get rid of it. What they did to me today violated the Constitution. Today I sit down with classicist, political commentator, and military historian Victor Davis Hanson, author of The Dying Citizen. What's the ability of Trump to make people go start raving mad and embarrass himself?